This brings us to the fourth cycle. Now, the book of Judges focuses more on the Gideon story than anything else. And the book of Judges does not focus on Gideon because he's a godly man. It focuses on Gideon because he's... See, Gideon is a microcosm of what we're seeing in Judges. So with each judge, we're seeing a gradual decline. Barak is not as good as Ehud. And Gideon is not going to be as good as Barak. And Jephthah is not going to be as good as Gideon. And Samson is not going to be as good. And we're seeing this downward spiral. But for us, when we read these stories, Barak has always been disobedient. And Jephthah has always been ungodly. But with Gideon, God is going to kind of zoom in on Gideon more and show where Gideon kind of does his roller coaster thing. He starts off not faithful to God, his faith kind of increases, and then it plummets drastically. And so that same gradual decline that we see throughout all the judges, God is going to zoom in and show the gradual decline within one person as a leader. The other reason that God is spending more time on Gideon is because Gideon is the pivot and the pivot in literature. See, the climax is when you have a problem introduced, and the problem gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and the climax is when the problem hits its peak, and it's so bad that everybody loses hope, and it's right before the moment of resolution. So it's right when the aliens are coming in, invading America, they've got a big laser, they're about ready to blow up the earth, and you think there's no hope. And then somehow the government finds a magical virus that can infiltrate the alien spaceship, and that's the, that's the climax. But for the pivot, the pivot is where things drastically shift. It's not exactly the climax where the problem is at its peak and the resolution is about ready to be introduced. It's just where things shift drastically. And it can be a watershed moment for the protagonist, the hero, or it can be a watershed moment for the enemy. And here, Gideon is a drastic pivot, a shift, because from this point on, things are going to get really bad. Othniel and Ehud were decent, good. Barak was hesitant, but he never really did anything completely ungodly. There's no, there's no story about him doing evil things, him murdering people, him oppressing people. He just didn't have a whole lot of faith, and he was hesitant. But with Gideon, we're going to be now introduced to sins. Gideon is going to actually do some pretty jacked up evil things. And this is going to lead to a shift in the judges where they're no longer just demonstrating a lack of faith, but they're actually blatantly disobeying God and his moral code. Gideon is now going to be our pivot, our shift, into a new kind of a judge, a bad kind of a judge. Once again, it says the Israelites did evil in Yahweh's sight, so Yahweh turned them over to Midian for seven years. The Midianites overwhelmed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made the shelters for them in the hills as well as caves and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people from the east would attack them. They invaded the land and devoured its crops all the way to Gaza. They left nothing for the Israelites to eat, and they took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys. And when they invaded with their cattle and tents, they were... As thick as locusts, neither they nor their camels could be counted. They came to devour the land, and Israel was so severely weakened by Midian that Israelites cried out to Yahweh for help. So he gave them over for seven years. So the Midianites are way down here off the map. South, so the Amalekites are right below Judah, and then south deep into the Sinai Peninsula, close to the, the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba is the Midianites. And then they allied themselves with the Amalekites, 
And then we're told that all the nations of the East also join us. So just a whole bunch of nations decide to get in on that as well. And we're told that the oppression is seven years. The oppression is way less than the last one. Previously, it was 18 years or 20 years and eight years. So last one was 20, last one was 18, last one was eight before that. So this is way less than any oppression seen so far. However, it's more severe. Notice that with all the other judges, God says that they were oppressed and this enemy came in and overtook them. But here we're given a graphic demonstration of them coming in, destroying crops, taking them animals. So it's way more severe and intense and it's covering all of Israel, at least in the southern part, all the way from the Jordan, all the way to the Philistine territory, which is right on the coast. And it's so bad that the Israelites are hiding. What's happening is the Israelites are agricultural people here and they're being portrayed as growing crops or raising animals. And right at the time that the animals are their plumpest or ripe for shearing wool, and right when the crops are about ready to be harvested, the enemy comes in and just raids and takes everything. And Israel's so scared that they're going to be killed, which they will be, that they hide in caves. And they wait for it to be over with, and then they have very little to survive, and most of them probably won't survive through the winter, and they start all over, and the next year happens all again. So even though they're being oppressed for less time, the oppression is far more severe and far more oppressive and light-threatening than it ever has been before. So in verse 7, it says, The Israelites cried out to Yahweh for help because of Midian. Notice that every other time that it says this, it says God responded by a deliverer. So with Othniel and Ehud, he raised up a deliverer. With Deborah, he doesn't call her a deliverer, Barak a deliverer, but he immediately shifted to the prophet of Deborah, who will call Barak. Here, he doesn't say deliverer. Just like he didn't say in the Barak story, he never mentions raising up a deliverer. Instead, he shifts to a prophet who's going to come and judge them and condemn them. So God doesn't immediately respond with a deliverer. He immediately responds with a prophet with a message of judgment. So when the Israelites cry out to Yahweh, verse 7, for help because of Midian, he sent a prophet to the Israelites, and he said to them, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up from Egypt and took you out of that place of slavery. I rescued you from Egypt's power and from the power of all that oppress you. I drove them out before you and gave them the land to you. I said to you that I am Yahweh, your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living, but you have disobeyed me. The statement, God lifted up a deliverer, is replaced with a prophet that says, I did this for you, 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 and you've disobeyed me. In. They're not getting a deliverer like God wants. That then shifts to Gideon. And we're never introduced to Gideon as, and God lifted up a deliverer. We're going to be introduced to Gideon, who's not anywhere even close to being a deliverer when we're first introduced to him. Yahweh's angelic, verse 11. Yahweh's angelic messenger came and sat down under the oak tree in Orpha, owned by Joash the Abrazite. He arrived while Joash's son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress, so he could hide it from the Midianites. And Yahweh's messenger appeared and said to him, Yahweh is with you, you courageous warrior. Where is Gideon? Gideon lives in this territory of Manasseh. So he's in the middle of Israel, and he lives in the territory of Manasseh. 
and we're told that he's threshing grain. So, what is threshing grain? Some of you, a lot of you probably know this, but some people don't. This is a wheat stalk. Wheat stalk is a stalk that stands about waist high, and at the top of the wheat stalk is the kernels of grain, and they're tightly bound together in the stalk, but they also have this little fuzzy stuff that sticks out of the grain called chaff. The chaff is what you don't want. It's kind of the consistency of cat whiskers. You don't want that. If you just grind this all down together and you bake bread and you're eating it, well, just imagine like it's bad enough to have hair in it, let alone cat whiskers in it. You can do it. It'd just be unpleasant. So what they do is they come in with a scythe and they with it's a stick with a curved blade on it and they cut all the, the wheat down at its stalk. The stalk gets cut down and now you have this long stalk with a grain at the top and then you cut this down and the men usually do this part and the women come in right behind them they start gathering it all up into bundles with all the heads facing one way and the feet facing the other way. What you do is then you lay this on a table of some kind and you take a sickle or some other kind of blade and you basically cut the heads off of the, the, the wheat stalk. And so the stalk then becomes bedding or what, what we know as straw for animals or animals to eat and that kind of stuff. And then your grain and your chaff just kind of crumbles and falls apart and separates as it hits the ground a little bit, but not completely. And now your chaff and your grain heads are all mixed together. This is where you introduce into winnowing and thrashing. And winnowing and thrashing is when you go through the process of separating the chaff from the grain. Now, normally what you would do is in some cultures where they have no hills or no wind, they might try to thrash the grain by tying a piece of wood to the back of a donkey or something, and the donkey just keeps walking over the pile back and forth and back and forth with a, with a wood dragging over, it, and the wood just kind of bounces on the grain chaff and breaks it all up. And then they would get a pitchfork, and they would put it into the grain and the chaff, and they would throw it up and you would try to have wind blow the chaff away and just keep doing this until the chaff and the grain separate. But that's not as efficient as what they would probably do in Israel. In Israel, they have hills. They would go to the top of a hill, and they would do this at the top, or not a big, big, big hill, because you don't want to carry it all up there. And they would put it in a basket, and they would throw the basket up without letting go of it, and the grain and the chaff would shoot up into the air, and the wind would come over and blow the chaff down the hill, and the grain would settle back in the basket. And so this is how you separate. Then once you're done with this, you have two piles, grain and chaff, completely separate. The grain you can now then grind down with a, uh, a grain millstone, a heavy stone that you just roll over and grind it down to a flour ready for baking, and the chaff at the bottom of the hill is used for starting fires. And this is why Jesus said in the Gospels, I'm going to separate the wheat from the chaff, and then I will throw the chaff into the fires of hell. And so for them, that chaff was the unbelievers, the disobedient. You would have this down there. So this is what he's doing. So you can see some pictures of this, kind of an idea. And But he is doing in a wine press. Now what is a wine press? A wine press is a cistern. In the ancient world, they don't have underground rivers that they would dig wells down to to get water. They would dig giant holes into the bedrock. And so the bedrock 
in Israel, the soil is about three to six inches deep. And then under that is just nothing but bedrock. So a community of people would get pickaxes and they would just start cutting into the bedrock and they would carve out a large cistern. And then we're talking about cisterns the size of houses. And it's this teardrop shape, kind of a hole in the ground. And so it's a big hole that kind of is like a bell, come gets wider and bigger like a teardrop, water drop, as it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And at the top, it comes and closes up and there's a hole that you can roll a stone over. This is a picture, so you can see people at the bottom. So this is halfway down the cistern, and you can see the people at the bottom and the opening at the top, and there's the opening. You can see birds there, so that gives you an idea how big the opening is. This would rain, and the rain would come and come and come and come and come and fill up these cisterns, and then you would roll a stone over it, and without air or light, or sorry, without, um, yeah, light or air, it would, all the bacteria would die and you'd have purified water. Eventually these cisterns would crack and you see this in the prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah or broken cisterns. And they were cracking and you couldn't use them anymore. So you would use this for one of two purposes afterwards. You could t- you just allow all that, because over the years of water coming in, there'd be dirt in the water and it would settle at the bottom and because it was water it would be mucky. And so you'd have all this muck at the bottom and sometimes they would use it as a, uh, a porta potty and then it made it a good dungeon to throw people into. Like Joseph, when he's thrown in the dungeon, or Jesus the night before his trial, they would throw you down to these things. Or you could turn them into a wine press, because we know that wine is best when it's kept in cool, dark places, like a wine cellar. Here's steps that they've carved into the side of the cistern, and here's kind of a grinding stone for grapes and that kind of stuff. So this would be turned into wine press. Gideon is in the bottom of one of these things threshing grain. Many of you have probably been on farms. How many of you have been in a grain silo that still has grain in it? Yes. What's it like? Yes. It's, once you step into it, you don't even have to step into it, but if you do, it really kicks up. And like you step into the, you just put your head in there and you just kick the grain a little bit and it just gets, re- it's really dry, it's dusty, it's got fumes and this stuff goes in the air and within seconds bringing that stuff in, you, your throat immediately dries out, it starts getting scratchy and you start coughing. And people have been known to suffocate to death just standing in one, not being buried in it, just standing in it. It is a nasty thing to be involved in. Gideon is in the bottom of a wine press, throwing grain up over and over and over again. Yes. But why? He's hiding. Here's the question. Is Gideon a huge coward who's not very intelligent? Or is he an intelligent person who's at least staying alive and keeping his grain He might be hacking his lungs out, but at least he's alive and at least he's keeping his grain. Or probably most likely just absolutely desperate. After seven years of the Midianites coming in and taking your food year after year after year, and your family barely making it through the winter, and you know that this is going to happen again, and his total desperation because he has no strength to defeat the enemy, and because he wants his food, because he doesn't want to starve in the winter, he is in the back bottom of wine press, which is the only thing you can think of. And in some ways it's brilliant, because he's keeping his grain and staying alive, but in other sense it's totally miserable and kind of cowardly. 
because God has actually called Israel to defeat the enemy, and he's not doing that. Either way, Gideon is not a courageous warrior. Yet the angel says, mighty warrior, Yahweh is with you. Now, why does God call him that? Because that's what he wants him to be. But that's also what God knows he could be if Gideon accepts the fact that God's with him. Notice that God says, I am with you, mighty warrior. You're a mighty warrior, not because God is going to train Gideon into that, not that God is going to equip Gideon to become a warrior, but Gideon is a mighty warrior because God is with him. Notice this is just like Moses. We're continuing this Moses theme. Moses was in the middle of the Midianite desert. He is attracted to the burning bush, and he's 80 years old, and he hasn't really done anything to be obedient to God. And God comes to him and says, I am with you, and I'm going to call you to go to my people and deliver them. And Moses is like, I can't do it. I'm not going. And Moses gives five, excuse, five times he objects to the calling of God. Some of them are phrased like questions, and some are just phrased as just statements. And finally, in the end, Moses says, I'm not going. Send somebody else. And God's like, oh, you're going. And you're going to thank me in the end. But every single time that Moses came up with an excuse, God responded by saying, I am with you. I'm not a good speaker, God. I am with you. What if they don't believe me? I am with you. Over and over and over again. And this is exactly how God starts with Gideon. I am with you, mighty warrior. And just like Moses, Gideon's going to respond and say, Who, me? I can't do this. So Gideon is hiding in his cistern, totally afraid, just doing everything he can to stay alive and keep his food. Yahweh's angel says this, verse 13. Gideon said to him, Pardon me, but if Yahweh is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? Where are all the miraculous deeds our ancestors told us about? They said, Did Yahweh not bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Now, just like Moses, Moses says, Who should I say is sending me? Like, who do you think you are? You haven't done anything for us for the last 400 years. And you want me to obey you and serve you? Now Gideon is kind of responding the same way. Pardon me? You're with us? I grew up on stories of the things that you did in Egypt and how you delivered us from the Egyptians to the, the Red Sea and that kind of stuff. But I haven't seen any of that in my entire life. And now the Midianites are impress, oppressing us. You say you're with us? No, you're not. Now Gideon doesn't fully understand who Yahweh is right now. And this is how Gideon responds. So, the great man of faith from Hebrews 11? Not really. He does not start off that way. Gideon is a coward, hiding, and when God says, I'm with you, Gideon says, yeah, right. I don't believe that I haven't seen any evidence of it. Now, notice that the angel is speaking to him right here. And then it says in verse 14, Then the Yahweh himself comes. And turned to him and said, You have the strength to deliver Israel from the power of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? Gideon said to him, But Yahweh, how can I deliver Israel? Just look, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I'm the youngest of my family. And then Yahweh said to him, Ah, but I will be with you. See the Moses thing? Once again, he just says, But I'm with you. That's all that matters. The only answer that you need to the but if, but, 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 but is... Yahweh is with you. If you really truly believe that, then there is no but. You will strike down the whole Midianite army. 
And Gideon said to him, If you are really pleased with me, then give me a sign. God comes to him and says twice, I am with you. And I'm calling you to defeat the Midianites. Now here's what's interesting. Yahweh says in the Hebrew, most of your translations probably show this, you will defeat the Midianite army as one man. Now this phrase, as one man, is a phrase used of unity. A unity that is so strong and so tight, it's as if they're one human. Kind of like watching birds fly, and they all move together like they're one body. Or if you're in a school of fish, and you just kind of step at them really hard, and they all move like one body. That's what this phrase communicates. As one man, with one mind, one action. Yet, here, who is God calling to defeat the Midianites? Gideon only. Here is the command of God, and this is so important, because a lot of people miss this, and when you miss this, you misunderstand everything that is happening next. God is calling Gideon to defeat the Midianite army all by himself. No help. And why is he able to do this? Because Yahweh is with him. Now, is this possible? Yes. We've seen examples with Barak where Barak didn't really have to do anything. God just routed the army. We've seen this where later in Samuel you're going to see Jonathan and Jonathan's like, God is with us and he goes attack them and God sends a panic among the Philistines and they just start killing each other. We see this with Samson where he's going to be all by himself and the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon him. He's going to defeat the enemy. We're told that Shamgar was able to do this. We know that this is totally possible because with Yahweh, nothing is impossible. And twice Yahweh has said this. And so this is very important for you to understand. God is commanding Gideon to defeat the army all by himself other than the fact that Yahweh is with him. And that's his direct command. So God told him, you're going to defeat the Midianites. You're going to do it by yourself and I'm guaranteeing you victory. That's the command. Then Gideon says, If it really is you, then give me a sign as proof that it is really you speaking with me. Do not leave this place until I have come back with a gift and presented to you. And Yahweh said, I will stay here until you come. And Gideon went and prepared a young goat along with unleavened bread and made from ephah a flour. And he put the meat in a basket of broth in a pot. And he brought the food to him under the oak tree and presented it to him. God's messenger said to him, Put the meat and unleavened bread on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did as instructed. And Yahweh's messenger touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff. And fire flared up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And Yahweh's messenger then disappeared. What is Gideon doing? He's testing God. Now is this good or bad? It's good. Why? I'm going to give you the answer to the first testing. Then you're going to figure out the next one on your own. It's good that he's testing God here. Now some of you are like, wait a minute, I always was taught not to test God. Yes, but mm, depending on the context. Why is it good that Gideon is testing God right here? He needs to be sure it's really... Ah, technically it's not okay to test God. I intentionally misworded that. (laughs) What Gideon is testing and says, is it really you? Does Gideon have a relationship with Yahweh? No. He says he knows about the stories, but he's never seen any evidence of Yahweh in his life. 
And if he says that, then there's no relationship. And if Yahweh comes and speaks to him, he's got to be sure. And this is very, very, very important for you to understand. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 18, and then Gideon doesn't have this yet, but 1 John chapter 4 is also going to command you to test every spirit, every prophet, every human who comes and says, Yahweh sent me. And we're going to be told it doesn't matter whether they're an angel, because we know that there's fallen angels. If it's a spirit, a prophet, because there's bad prophets, or a human, it says it doesn't even matter whether it's your brother, your sister, your husband, your father, or your mother. It doesn't matter. If anybody says, thus saith the Lord, or I come in the name of Yahweh, you're immediately to test to see if they truly are from God or not. And if they're not from God, then you're to kill them. And it doesn't matter who they are. God doesn't want you following false voices, false impersonations. Gideon says, a Gideon who knows stories about God, but doesn't even know who God is, doesn't recognize God's voice, doesn't recognize the tone of God as in like how God speaks and how God calls people, wants to be sure. He builds an altar, he puts the meat there, and fire comes down and instantaneously burns this altar. And at that point, Gideon knows. Now notice, all during this time, Gideon has been using the Hebrew word Elohim, which is translated G-O-D in your Bibles. And the word Elohim can refer to any God. He's God, 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 God. That's all he says and uses. But in verse 22, it says, When Gideon realized that it was Yahweh's messenger, he said, Oh no, Master Yahweh. I have seen Yahweh's messengers face to face. Yahweh said to him, You are safe. Do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Gideon built an altar for Yahweh there and named it. Yahweh is on friendly terms with me. To this day it is still there an Orpha of the Abrazites. The narrator has been calling Yahweh Yahweh, but Gideon never has. And this moment Gideon knows it's Yahweh because no other God does this kind of stuff like this. And when Gideon sees that, he immediately says, this is Yahweh. I have seen Yahweh's messenger. I have spoken to Yahweh, and I'm going to build an altar to Yahweh and call it Yahweh is here. And, or I'm on friendly terms with Yahweh. This is the first step of Gideon's faith. He starts off as a coward who's completely oblivious to Yahweh without a relationship with his covenantal God and seriously doubting God's ability to take care of him. And when he sees this with his own eyes, he realizes all those stories are true. And he begins to step out in faith. And he worships Yahweh. So yes, Gideon was kind of in the wrong, but that's mostly the fault of his generation not properly teaching him about God and introducing him. However, now he's responding appropriately. Now, no, some people say that this angel of the Lord and Yahweh are the same being. Because sometimes the angel of the Lord talks as if he is God. And that confuses a lot of people. People don't realize that that's how all messengers of God talk. They talk as if they're God. And when you get to the prophets, Isaiah is going to say, I saved you from Egypt. And you're like, Isaiah didn't do that. And so that's how the angel speaks here. But the fact that it says that the angel spoke to him and then Yahweh turned to him and spoke to him. And then it says when the altar was burnt up or the meat was burnt up, then the angel disappeared and left. But Yahweh continued to talk to Gideon. These things clearly show that these are two different beings. These are two different beings. 
And even though your Bible says the angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, a definite article that refers to a very specific angel, the, and the Hebrew actually says an angel of Yahweh. It's more indefinite. So which means it could be any angel. It's just any angel that belongs to God, and God happened to choose one here. God is speaking to him, and the angel appears and begins to talk. Then God shows up and talks, and then the angel instructs him how to do this sacrifice, and then the angel leaves, and God finishes talking, and then God leaves. But here's the other thing you must understand. How did God burn up the, the meat on the altar? Not fire. In the ancient world, in the Hebrew, there is no word for lightning. It's actually lightning. Because they don't have a word for lightning. When lightning comes down and hits the ground, it bursts into the fire. They believe that there's this fire, but it's the fire of the gods, and that's why it looks different. So when the fire comes from the spiritual realm, it's fire. And it's the fire of the gods. But when it hits the ground, it's now in the material realm, and it now looks like our fire, the fire we're used to. Same thing with Elijah's story. It's not that God brought down fire from heaven. It's that he sent a lightning bolt down and struck the altar. And here God is doing the same thing. Now, why is that important? Because the very next thing that God is going to command him to do is tear down the Baal altar. Baal is the storm, thunder, lightning God. First thing that God does is not only does he do a miracle to prove to Gideon that he is real, but knows who controls and who owns and who's leading the Baal worship in his village. His father. Which means his father is a high priest, a Israelite man who's a high priest in the religion of Baal. And Gideon is going to be the son who will take over after his father, or one of many sons. The first thing that God does is not only prove to him that it is Yahweh speaking to him, but that I am greater than the Baal God that you've been worshiping. Because the minute he shows him that he's greater than Baal and that he really is the storm God and not Baal, then when he commands Gideon to tear down the Baal altar, Gideon will be more likely to do that because now he's seen evidence with his own eyes of that. So everything right now so far has been starting off well. Gideon has confessed Yahweh as God. He has built an altar to him. He's worshiping him. And now he has his command from God. 